You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Tony Altar, Senior Senior Scientific Fellow and Advisor uh, at Verge Genomics. Website is vergegenomics.com. And we're going to be talking about uh, brain illnesses and how genomics and gene therapies can provide new mechanisms of treatment. So thanks for coming, Tony. I appreciate it. Hey, Richard, it's my pleasure to be here. And I really would like to thank you and Future Tech, it's Future Tech Health. Yeah, well, no problem. No problem. So tell me what what got you interested in this area of science? Why not why not something else? What what fascinates you about this? Well, I became interested in the human brain and what can go wrong with the brain to cause disease when I was a 17-year-old high school student in West Los Angeles. You know, around that time, uh, there was a lot of use of psychedelic drugs and it was actually really fascinating to me to to see the use and effects of those compounds. You know, it seemed that if a single molecule could create temporary psychosis or euphoria or mood disorders, you know, could then the mechanism of psychiatric illnesses uh, share these same features? Could they uh, have a similar uh, single or even possibly simple cause? So that was really fascinating to me and my contemporaries around that time. Um, you know, luckily, I'd finished all of my uh, training at high school before the end of the normal period. So I was able to uh, uh, go and work as a volunteer at the Brentwood Veterans Administration Laboratory. It was actually the Neurobiochemistry Lab, which I'm not sure I could even pronounce back then, but it was fascinating to me. Uh, I only understood, you know, some of what the guys in the lab said, but uh, they took me under their wing, and um, you know, I learned a lot, including the scientific methods to study the brain. Um, you know, I was lucky to have a desk that I could sit at, and uh, one of the, uh, the little poster that was on the wall by the desk described how understanding the cause of disease is the first step to finding a cure. I think it was from a drug company, promotional brochure. But that became like a mantra for me. Uh, and it really has for, I think, all medical innovators. This message really hasn't changed. Um, but the question then is, so how best can we understand the basis of disease, especially psychiatric or neurodegenerative diseases, which are, hmm. you know, in the brain, it's not very accessible, it's hard to study. So really the question was, what are the best methods, what are the best approaches that we can use that will pay off and help guide us to helping these patients? 
So that well, was a lot of different. Uh, yeah, quick question is a lot of different, you know, neurodegenerative diseases. Each of them is so vast in scope. So have you focused in on one or two conditions or what's your focus? Yeah, I have in my career uh, an inverged genomics. Uh, we're really focused on uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS and Parkinson's disease. So it's the first two starting to study schizophrenia a bit as well. And, you know, the mission at Verge is to understand what causes disease so that we can convert that knowledge to new therapeutics. But, you know, really, Richard, in practice, not just, well, before today, it's been a, a 10 to 20-year step each way, you know, understanding the disease mechanism and then maybe another 10 or 20 years to, to come up with the right drug. Uh, and this is a long process in practice. But the two things I'd like to talk about today, genomics and gene therapy, I think are going to broaden the scope of diseases that we can address and also hasten the period of time it takes to develop therapeutic entities. So genomics, is it uh, studying genes and gene expression? Is it uh, more than that with epigenetics and uh... You know, what, how do you define genomics? Yeah, genomics in my in my world is a little more narrowly defined as to uh, the changes in the expression of genes in the disease tissues. You know, the epigenetics is another level. You know, how the genes are modified by methylation and acetylation, and that is another interesting approach. It's a little uh, even earlier, I think, in terms of development, but something of interest in the future. And we're really focused on you know mRNA changes. And, and the reason is that the reason for that is because you know, if you have a, a set of, in this case, brain tissues from patients, let's say in Parkinson's disease, we study let's, the substantia nigra, which is the part of the brain that dies in Parkinson's. You can look at the gene expression in those patients versus people who died at similar ages but not with Parkinson's disease. You can start to get what is called a disease signature, that is, the collection of genes whose changes are predictive of the patients and don't change in the control patients. And that's, um, that's really my definition and broad definition of genomics is that mRNA change. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know if this is like a curveball, but you, know, you said earlier you saw a saying from a drug company uh, saying they need to understand the cause of disease. But what if the cause of disease falls outside of the narrow window that you're looking at it in, let's say? I'm not saying narrow, bad. I'm just saying that's the choice of virtual genomics. Why? What happens if it has nothing to do with mRNA? What happens if it has to do with some other mechanism? You know, like it may be overlooked, for instance. So do you feel well, like the approach is, a, is valid or it should be wider? Or? Well, the, the net that we cast actually in terms of profiling the mRNA is about as wide as it can get. There are, there are 20,000 genes in the human body. The brain is actually a little bit unique. It expresses almost half of those. So it's got a very rich transcriptome. Uh, the other half of the genes aren't neuron necessary, so they don't bother to make the proteins that are encoded by those genes. And, you know, we know about the 20,000 genes because that came from the work of, you know, the Human Genome Project, which concluded from NIH and Solera Genomics back in 2000. So now we have those 20,000 genes, so we can study essentially all of them. Um, and for maybe the listeners who, who aren't familiar with the DNA mechanism, you know, those 20,000 genes, each one of those codes one or maybe several different proteins, uh, and that's what makes a liver cell or a muscle cell, kidney or skin cell, you know, that type of cell, because they make a, a particular subset of those 20,000 gene products. And as I mentioned, the brain has a pretty rich one, eight or 9,000 of those 
20,000 genes are found in, in brain cells. And so you can oh, wow. measure the activity of each of those genes by simply measuring the amount of mRNA that's produced in the diseased tissue and then comparing that with uh, another group of tissues from patients who died but without the disease. And so we do cast a broad net. We do end up with uh, what we call an mRNA disease signature. Uh, your point's a good one, Richard. And certainly we're, we're hinging our bets on the fact that the mRNA changes are revealing the underlying pathology of the disease. And there are plenty of examples where that is, is not exactly true. So, for example, the mRNA could be made at the same normal level, but it could have a mutation in it that causes that mature, that mature mRNA to actually make a dysfunctional protein. And that may not be picked up by some of the mRNA profiling techniques. So it, it is one method. It's not the only method, but it's a pretty powerful one, as I could describe for a couple of these indications. So starting with Parkinson's, you mentioned that it happens, I guess, in the substantia nigra. What, what have you observed appears to be the cause of it, and what's happening, and how does the progression occur, and how does it hurt the person? You know, there's, it's interesting that you asked about that, because one of the things that we've been doing at Verge is using a very new technique called single nucleus sequencing. Uh, where we have actually looked at uh, first several patients with Parkinson's and several controls uh, using this technique in the substantia nigra. What single nucleus sequencing does is it allows you to measure the mRNA in the nucleus of each of the cells in a diseased brain area. So instead of getting an average, let's say, of the mRNA uh, for each gene, but in a dissected tissue, which is unfortunately a mixing of all the cells and therefore kind of an averaging effect, Instead, with single nucleus sequencing, you can get the mRNA measure for each gene in each cell. So it's a spectacular advance that's just come to the fore in the last few years. So, for example, we've dissected out the uh, substantia nigra and profiled that using the single nucleus sequencing method. Uh, for the thousands of cells that we had in each dissected area, uh, we were able to then readily, relatively easily categorize each cell as whether it's a dopaminergic cell originally or whether it was a GABAergic or a microglia or an astrocyte and about 10 other different cell types that we found in our clusters. And so what you can do now is you can actually take a dissected brain area and look with single nucleus sequencing at just, let's say, the dopaminergic subset of, of cells, and then we can study the genes that are different in those dopaminergic neurons in the patient versus the controls. So it's kind of an amazing way of separating out the cells and looking at all of their, uh, the gene expression as that uniform population of cells. So we're really comparing apples to apples as we make this kind of analysis. And one of the things we've discovered already, and this is a very preliminary pairings of patients, uh, we're going to do quite a few more, but we've already discovered uh, a clear deficit in iron metabolism, which reinforces some of the more compelling uh, among many theories about the cause of Parkinson's disease. So it, it helps you focus your research, especially if it overlaps with what's already been published, but it allows you to select from multiple theories and really focus on one or two that your own independent analysis helps to reinforce. Would you, um, I wonder if it would be possible to take imaging of a small area of the brain you know, that you want to study, then you're doing this single nucleus sequencing and literally map out visually where the uh, the changes are occurring and how they're occurring. Are they spreading from a central point? Are they uniform? Do they have a certain character? So, so the, absolutely, that can be done. The caveat is it's not usually, probably has never, well, it's rarely done in the same patient. 
there are examples in Alzheimer's where people have been able to image the amyloid plaque burden and how it grows over time in one patient, and then that same patient has died, and one can then go in that same brain and do an analysis. I don't think that's ever been done for single nuclear sequencing, although that, that's an interesting uh, potential. But imaging does let you zero in on the areas that change earliest in disease. Those are the ones we're typically interested in. And then in other patients, we can then take the brains and, and dissect out just those key areas and then continue to study them with these different techniques. So like in Parkinson's, is, an, is there an area of the substantial nigrans that, um, that first is affected? Does it happen to the center of it, the side of it, are there other structures that are adjacent to it that might play a role? You know, that's interesting, and our own data already helps us answer that question. We already knew that the pars compacta of the substantia nigra, which is where the dopaminergic neurons live and then eventually die in Parkinson's, that's the key area. And interestingly, we'll be able to see in our broader study whether any of the other cell types are affected. There are GABAergic neurons there and, and other cell types. And so you can really look at how specific is this disease to that one neuron type, or are there changes that are going on through all, throughout the brain area, and that those particular vulnerable ones just happen to be bystanders that get killed? Or are, is there something special about them that makes them vulnerable and that they die? And we already have evidence that latter is true, that the, the, the dopaminergic neurons have certain components that really make them more vulnerable. And, We'll know more as we more in this particular area of research, but uh, we're learning a lot with this particular technique. You, have you identified um, how Parkinson's appears to start? You know, you've been looking at a, a healthy brain a control, as you call it. Um, have you seen any evidence of Parkinson's starting? Does it exist in all brains or only certain ones? Well, in fact, it does. That's an excellent question. You know, unfortunately, dopaminergic neurons, for certain reasons, we're just beginning to understand, are generally vulnerable. Roughly half a percent of your dopamine neurons die every year of your life. So if someone lives to be 90 or 100 years old, they've lost up to half of their dopaminergic neurons, just naturally, without necessarily having a genetic or other specific cause of Parkinson's disease. Uh, fortunately, there's redundancy in the system. So if you've lost just half, you might have maybe a few subtle effects like uh, longer reaction times and things like that, but not any frank tremors, rigidity, or other symptoms of the disease. Interestingly, there's another population, serotonergic neurons or serotonin neurons, that die even earlier. And there was a recent imaging study, uh, actually just a couple weeks ago, that showed that you could detect the loss of those serotonin neurons in the Parkinsonian brain by PET imaging well before the Parkinson's symptoms appeared. And this is really consistent with the fact that serotonin and, and other populations of neurons are actually quite vulnerable as well. A lot of emphasis is placed on the dopamine neurons but there are other cell types that are just as vulnerable and maybe even earlier uh, vulnerable neurons that die in this disease. Hmm, very interesting. For the reason there's a Parkinson's disease yeah. is you can treat the patients with L-DOPA. That replaces the missing dopamine. It doesn't replace the missing serotonin, and the patients really get noticeably much, much better. Uh, so yeah. that's part of why there's been a, such a big emphasis. And dopaminergic neuron loss was easily detected. The cells are actually dark. When you do a dissection of a, of a brain from a patient who recently died, you can actually see the dark cells without any aid, just visually. They're, they're just clearly visible. In Parkinson's, they're clearly and visibly gone. So that directed a lot of attention to these dopaminergic neurons as being the, the first ones discovered. 
Well, now, now that you know the serotonin, their serotonin related ones are also affected earlier. And I wonder, it makes you wonder if you coupled L-DOPA with SSRIs that would have a worse synergistic effect. And, and, and in fact, that's absolutely done because these patients often have depression. And that's not just because they have Parkinson's, but they're probably depressed also because they're losing the serotonin neurons. So they are commonly treated with SSRIs, and that does help with their depression. So uh, the, real, the real challenge here is how can we stop these cells from dying? And that's where the genomics work goes in, you know, learning about these pathways, like let's say iron metabolism, we continue to find that as a cause. It'll direct our interest to drugs that uh, prevent uh, excessive iron oxidation. Uh, that, and that's the whole idea behind genomics, that it really helps you identify the drug target. And it may be a totally new target, or it may reinforce one that's already known. You know, we've done the same uh, at a company called Psychiatric Genomics that I helped establish and run in the early 2000s. And talk about being on the bleeding edge, we were definitely there. This is just when the human genome was first sequenced. And so we boldly went out to looking for gene mRNA changes that could tell us about the cause of schizophrenia, bipolar, and depression. And we did the same kind of gene expression profiling compared to healthy age match controls. And what was really interesting is that we were able to discover uh, that um, in schizophrenia, but not in depression or bipolar, we could find a set of genes that changed really quite dramatically versus healthy controls. And we replicated those in another cohort of patients. Uh, and so that gave us a large set of genes whose decreases in schizophrenia were confirmed. Uh, we were able to you know, look at those genes just as a list of the changes, and it really became quite clear without any complex artificial intelligence, just using our natural intelligence. We were able to look at the list, and it was clear that these were genes involved in cell metabolism. Uh, and this was consistent with what was already known, again, by imaging, that in the brains of patients with schizophrenia, uh, there's a decrease in glucose utilization and brain metabolism. So what was really amazing to us is other people had done some similar gene expression profiling studies in patients with diabetes, looking at skeletal muscle. And what they found was the very similar set of the genes. In fact, the two lists were almost overlapping. Genes that were decreased in the schizophrenic brain were also decreased in the people who had diabetes in their skeletal muscle. And so this confirmed our hypothesis that perhaps schizophrenia is like a diabetes-like condition of the brain. So we proposed that insulin or some insulin-like protein, of which there are a few known, uh, and are both in the brain, uh, that their function is diminished in schizophrenia. And this helped us yeah. identify a new target for schizophrenia. It's actually a, a receptor, which had already had some clinical validation in patients. But the significance was really not as well appreciated until we made this discovery that this receptor target can replace the missing insulin signaling to correct the gene defects that were seen in the brain of schizophrenic patients. And we actually showed in cell line, cell models, that we could reverse those very same gene deficiencies with these receptor ligands as well as with insulin. And so that's a very exciting concept. The reason it's exciting is there's really no other target for schizophrenia except for the dopamine uh, receptor blockers that are common to every single antipsychotic medication that's out there. So this heralded a new potentially non-dopaminergic target to which several drug companies right now are working to come up with novel ligands to stimulate that same receptor. 
and, and potentially treat schizophrenia and related forms of uh, cognitive decline. So it's it's well, an why interesting. Do you, why do you, mm-hmm. yeah, quick question. Why why would iron metabolism change? Why would glucose metabolism change after, you know, 30 years of the same brain, 50 years of the same brain? And what about the underlying metabolic pathways? Is there something yeah. to be found there? Or do you think it's because of changes in genes and gene expression and mutations? Yeah, let's let's start with the iron metabolism and Parkinson's disease. Uh, I mean, the, the the changes can be very subtle because, as I mentioned, there's already a, a half a percent loss of your dopamine neurons every year just normally. That might itself be due to iron oxidating uh, reactions. Uh, iron catalyzes the production of free radicals and oxidative species. That's well known. It's probably true even in normal brain. There are protective mechanisms that protect against that but maybe not quite enough, and so the cells still die, but at a slow rate. All it takes is a subtle weakening of that uh, protective capacity, and now this iron-catalyzing reaction is greater in a Parkinsonian brain. Instead of a half a percent, maybe now patients lose one or one and a half percent per year. So after 50 or 60 years, the neurons are mostly dead. And your question, that still doesn't answer your question, though, which is a really good one. What other mechanisms are causing those systems to become more active? And so we discovered in this very preliminary study that uh, a couple of the important proteins that allow iron to be ferreted out of the cell are diminished in the Parkinson brain. And so you could imagine that if iron is accumulating more in the Parkinsonian neuron, that that iron can catalyze these toxic reactions and kill the cell. So it, we're perhaps just on on the mechanism uh, that creates the disease. And that, that is very exciting because now you've got a specific hypothesis that you can start testing uh, and, and, and entertain others. I mean, there are probably some others that will come out of our more expanded studies. Uh, and uh, then it becomes a matter of doing in vitro and in vivo testing with model systems to see which of those really continues to be convincing and, and then from that point, you, you get more focused on your target and your drug discovery effort. It's weird. It's like an endless chain of whys. Why is this? Well, then why is that? Well, then why, why did this happen to cause that? You know, it's, it's hard to know when to stop and at what points the intervention would be useful. But I guess, you know, you want to intervene at the, 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 the first step if you can, that you discover well, so you don't have to endlessly dig to, uh, to things out. Well, that's exactly right. And that's been the conundrum in drug discovery, certainly in central nervous system diseases. Uh, We really don't have the full confirmation that we had the right target and the right drug for that target until we've gone through very expensive and extensive clinical studies in patients. Then you get a good sense, if you have a good effect, that you were right. You still have the broader population of patients after the drug is approved to know that that was still a safe as well as effective approach, but it's a long process. The reason that that's interesting is there's another, the other half of what I was hoping and looking forward to talking about today is the second big revolution in treating brain diseases after genomics, and that's gene therapy. So gene therapy Hmm. gets to your very point, Richard, and that is, you know, why not just go right to the cause of the disease uh, and, and correct that? And for all these diseases we've been talking about, uh, certainly ALS, Parkinson's disease, and, and, and many, of, including Alzheimer's, there are in subsets of patients a well-known genetic cause for their disease. So there's a genetic mutation for each of those uh, that 
predicts that the patient will get the disease with 50, 75, or even 100% certainty. Fortunately, for the, you know, fortunately, this is in a relatively small percentage of patients. And the reason I say fortunately is these tend to be more severe forms of the disease and they tend to occur earlier than the sporadic or, or ones that we really still don't know what the genetic cause is. But for those, there's still hundreds, thousands, and in some cases, tens of thousands of patients with these gene mutations that gene therapy really can address. So now for the first time, uh, and in fact, only as recently as 2017 was the first FDA-approved gene therapy uh, uh, in existence in the United States. So only since 2017 have we had an FDA-approved drug that really can get at the cause. Uh, and this is a drug called Luxterna, developed by Spark Therapeutics, and it was the first approved full-length gene therapy, uh, in this case for a form of blindness. Uh, it uh, treats people who have a real problem in low-light uh, vision, and uh, it was a tremendous excitement to the community to have this approved after intraretinal injections of this were found to, to treat essentially every person, almost every person that got the therapy. So well, what I was just about to ask you, um, you don't want a therapy probably systemically acting, you want it locally acting, but you know, getting into the brain is not so easy. So how would you do a gene therapy in the brain? Well, interestingly, neuroscience comes out as a lead in another area of medicine where you might not have expected it to. You know, it's hard to imagine that we're going to cure blindness, but we have with drugs like ILEA from Regeneron and, and now this uh, gene therapy approach from Luxterna. And there are others. Spinal muscular atrophy is another CNS-associated disease. It was approved uh, uh, for Biogen. Uh, it's treating spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, interestingly, another drug that's on its way in the gene therapy areas from Voyager Pharmaceuticals. It's a gene uh, that uh, a product that increases the levels of a, an enzyme that actually converts L-DOPA to dopamine. And by injecting that directly into the area of the brain that needs that dopamine, um, Voyager has been able to show that they can greatly decrease the amount of L-DOPA that patients need and that the efficacy of the L-DOPA that they get is increased. So it's interesting. The brain is not a very accessible area. And it is true, if you had to inject these gene therapy products intravenously, they, they, some of them look like they might get into the brain in a low level, but they, their effects are greatly diminished and diluted by going into the blood. So the direct brain injection has been the preferred route. Uh, it'll be interesting to see other applications. In fact, the same enzyme that Voyager developed, uh, another group has been able to inject that in, into the brains of kids who don't have that enzyme. And, and their dramatic mood and, 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 and other uh, cognitive disorders have been corrected by that kind of therapy as well. So uh, okay. perhaps, you know, I was going to just say that perhaps the limited spread of these uh, agents when delivered to the brain has been partially a, a blessing, that it limits the therapy to really where it's needed and concentrates the gene therapy product to where it's needed. Hey, very tricky stuff. Um, well, it is. So and... Yeah. Oh, well, I haven't gone into the, the mechanics of gene therapy. So are you doing experiments where you're doing like gene knockouts to see the effective genes? You know which ones need to be changed or you're looking at more of the expression and that's telling you more directly which genes would need to be uh, affected to make a change? You know, there are a variety of approaches uh, in the gene therapy area. Uh, one 
most one of the earlier ones was to inject or treat with a what's called a, a, a cDNA, which is really a, a copy form of DNA that now can <clears throat> make the full length protein. And the problem with that is uh, many genes are too big to be delivered by cDNA. They actually just can't fit into the adeno-associated virus, which is commonly used to deliver them. And so that limits that approach. Another one that, that we've all heard a lot about is CRISPR, which is uh, a little bit uh, complex in the sense that it needs multiple reagents, uh, an enzyme, as well as the CRISPR uh, its, uh, reagent itself to correct the DNA mutations that exist. That fixes the DNA, and that there are advantages around that. But um, there are other approaches, which I think are even more exciting, uh, that can actually edit the, the mutations in the DNA, or sorry, that edit uh, mutations that are existing in DNA, but after they're converted. So, you know, you know, before uh, DNA or deoxyribonucleic acid is used to make a specific protein, it has to be copied into what's called pre-mRNA. So that's the same co copy. It's actually an exact copy of the DNA code, but the nucleus makes it in the form of ribonucleic acid. And this is called pre-mRNA. So pre-mRNA is, a, as I said, a complete copy of DNA, but it contains all the introns or intergenic regions as well as the exons that are the coding regions that make the mature protein. So this intergenic region, the intron, has to be removed so that the gene coding exons can be spliced together. This reaction is called splicing. It occurs in every nucleus of the cell, and it forms that mature messenger or mRNA that we discussed you know, earlier when we talked about uh, genomics. So almost all genes need that form of pre-mRNA splicing. I think it's something like 95% of all genes are spliced like that. And it's really, the, when you think about it, it's the dominant natural form of of uh, editing to mRNA and causing the uh, correct proteins to be made. So it's really not surprising to think that, you know, if this is the natural dominant gene editor, perhaps can we exploit that process and hack into it, you know, to correct the gene mutation? And in fact, that has occurred. It's a process called transplicing. And I've been reading up on this quite a bit. It's been done in over 30 examples of disease gene correction in both human cells and animal models. It hasn't gone to the clinic yet, but I think RNA transplicing is gonna, it will become a, if not the dominant mode of gene editing, uh, because it's already been shown in these cell and animal-based models to be applicable to a large range of diseases. So the idea is if you inherited a gene mutation, let's take an example, Huntington's disease, where we know the cause of Huntington's. It's a repeat of what's called a CAG sequence uh, if you could convert that CAG repeat to the normal shorter form of fewer CAG repeats, I think everybody would agree that you would treat, essentially cure the disease because the only difference in people with Huntington's is this one mutation. So what splicing molecules have been shown in some preclinical studies uh, in, uh, in animal model that, sorry, in human cell line, that you can actually convert that very long Huntington-creating uh, CAG repeat into the much shorter fact form of the gene. And as a result, the protein is corrected, and the cells live much longer, and they don't go through, they have higher metabolic rates back towards the level of normal, and they live much longer. They don't show the 
program cell death that occurs in the Huntington's um, cell model. So here you have an example where you haven't had to touch the DNA, but in only those cells that express the Huntington protein, you are able to correct that Huntington gene, not in every copy, but in many copies, to form the healthy form of the gene. And as a result, the healthy form of the protein, and as a result, give evidence that this could be an approach to be used in people. So that's, that's a form of gene editing, which I think is uh, quite exciting. And it's got examples yep. in many other uh, conditions, including tauopathies, hemophilia, cystic fibrosis, and the list goes on and on. It may be uh, ancillary, but since you can use single nucleus sequencing, have, uh, has, there been, has anyone looked to see if there's microbes in the brain, you know, like a microbiome of the brain or viruses that are in there? Um, that could be affecting these conditions and modulating them, and then thereby sequencing the, uh, the microbes found in any. You know, that's, that's a possibility. That's kind of outside of my range of expertise. I know there's a lot that's been said about the possible uh, conveyance of viruses or, or bacteria, actually, from the, the gut through the vagus nerve into the brain, explain diseases like Parkinson's. I just haven't really studied it that much to give a good answer. Okay. Yeah, I just thought it came to mind. So what's, um, what are some of the milestones that you'd be super excited to achieve you know, the next few years with your work? Uh, I think personally, uh, for us at Verge Genomics to uh, continue in our ALS program where we've already produced some really very potent molecules that are uh, active at the target we've identified for ALS, to see that go into a clinical development plan and actually help patients. We've talked to people in the ALS community. I mean, patients are really excited to be enrolled in these kinds of studies. So that would be a, a terrific milestone. Another one in our Parkinson's area would be to identify targets uh, that have been validated in the literature or potentially completely unknown uh, and be able to create a drug discovery program around them and validate them in, in cell models as well as in animal models. And uh, you know, there we have a lot of, there are a lot of good uh, models available for what happens after the Parkinson's is developed, and even some pretty good ones that create the disease and, and may do so through the natural disease creation process that mimic that process. So, you know, you can get a reasonable level of confidence uh, that your drug is going to work. And so I think with the right evidence, uh, Verge is well positioned to have compounds that uh, show real promise uh, for Parkinson's and uh, could well be in the clinic for ALS in the next few years. So personally, I think at Verge, that would be a, a real goal. I think in the industry, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons to be excited about where gene therapy and genomics are going in the, in the few, next few years. And, you know, I think there's going to be real growth in companies and maybe even in the government services for sequencing people's DNA, even at birth. You know, until now, there really hasn't been as much need because there hasn't been so many actionable results of knowing that you have a Huntington's gene mutation or knowing that you've got a presenilin mutation for uh, Alzheimer's disease. But uh, over time, with the advent of new therapies, there will be things that we can do to actually address this. So I, I see a growth there. I see a tremendous need for uh, uh, companies that analyze mRNA and patient samples at the single cell level. Uh, I see a growth in companies that develop drug and gene therapies based on these discoveries and that manufacture the vectors that are needed. You know, already there's a two-year waiting list for 
companies that manufacture adeno-associated viruses, and that's common at many facilities. Um, you know, there's also going to be a growth for uh, genetic counselors, because the more genes that we can address through these approaches, the more it really is useful to know if a person has, what are the gene mutations that a person has, because now there's maybe something that can be done for those. So that, that's another area of real growth, I see. Well, very good. And what's what's the best way for people to uh, you know to read papers that you put out or to you know get in contact with Verge or uh, you know ask questions? Um, well, I mean the Verge website has got some information. Um, there's a society that I recently joined, the American Society for Gene and Cell Therapy, which is for those who are more technically associated, the scientists on the call. I think you'd really be excited to go to that meeting. I came away from many lectures. Uh, impressed by the progress, and then by the end of the meeting, I, I'd come away a little disappointed if I didn't see a, a group of, of uh, patients who were now living that otherwise wouldn't, or animal model that worked phenomenally well, where previously nothing had worked. So that's a great society for the progress in gene therapy. Uh, that's another way, and uh, you know, there's just a lot happening uh, in, in the in the lay press as well. Um, you know, I think there's a second wave of all this to consider. As we learn about the genes that are really impactful uh, and the targets that are validated uh, by gene therapies, that also now opens up another wave of pharmaceutical discovery because we've always been looking for targets in the pharmaceutical industry. And if we can confirm through gene therapy that a certain target is really the target to go after, the drug approach now becomes a lot more straightforward. And we're with more confidence we can address drugs for that particular target. To date, that's been a big risky thing, but I think gene therapy will actually enable the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, and conversely, that's true too. You know, if we know that certain drugs work for a disease, but we're not getting complete uh, efficiency, uh, you know, if we know that that pathway is the one that's important, uh, but the gene therapy doesn't quite do the trick, uh, there may be a drug therapy that can be used as well. So this will open up the area of repurposing medications that are already known for other indications. Uh, we can now take those drugs, knowing what pathways they affect, and try them for diseases for which now the pathways have been better elucidated through the genomics work and potentially even the gene therapies that work. So I, you know, there's going to be a lot of crosstalk between these fields that I think is going to make a, a a big increase in the breadth and the impact of drugs for the future. Yeah, I definitely hope so, because these are serious conditions that affect a lot of people in a terrible way. So, well, very good. And Tony, thank you for coming. I appreciate it, uh, you know, and your time on the podcast. Richard, thank you, too. It's a, a real pleasure to be able to share what I think is a fascinating area uh, for, mm -hmm. for your listeners. You know, I think just to leave your listeners with a vision that I think the future is bright for treatment and even cures for diseases that well, maybe 10 years ago, we would hard be hard-pressed to see or even use the word cure. Clinical proofs take time, and, and that's the hardest, longest part of this whole process. But I think this greater breadth of diseases and the shorter time to develop particular therapies for them is going to be a result of what a growing revolution in genomics and gene editing. Thanks. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. 
Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.